Good morning. Luke's going to help me out here. Well, this morning I, I, I want to share a couple things before I get started. First of all, much of what I'm going to tell you today is, is uh, from a book from John Piper. It's a recent book uh, entitled, What is Saving Faith? And it's just kind of a little bit crazy how that came about. I, I had some, I was telling Dan yesterday, I had some credits left from, from uh, Audible, and I wasn't sure I was getting ready to cancel the membership, and I was just kind of looking around, and I saw this book and decided it ought to be the, I had to get that one. And so I got going and started reading it, and, and, uh, and when Brian asked me to, if I would be willing to, to teach and preach, um, I just knew that was, the right, that was the right thing for me to preach on and, and work through, and, and uh, so I hope it'll be encouraging to you, um, and uh, I'm going to try my best to get through what I can this morning. I can just tell you that after I got going in this, I, I realized that there's no possibility that I could give you really the full uh, depth of the book. You know, it's 300 pages long, it's nine hours of listening, and the reality of this is maybe about half, roughly, maybe a, a little bit, but it really needs to have either another message uh, or, or some other further discussion, and I, I just hope that it provokes you to um, either get the book, think through, think through this, uh, because I, for me, it was, I don't think I really under, understood honestly, what saving faith really meant. I mean, I think, I, I will just tell you that, you know, growing up, you know, in Catholicism, it was like, you know, you, 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 you were, you believed in Christ, but you didn't really get saved until you were good enough to possibly, you got, sort of got saved when you got, when you were going to go to heaven, right? And if you messed up a little bit, you go to purgatory, <laughs> basically, for, for a while. But I always, for many, for a long, long time, I always, I always thought to myself, you know, the, the Bible says, if we confess, confess with our lips and believe in our heart. And so I kept thinking, well, what does that mean to believe in my heart? How do I, how do I get it? And I'd even say, well, I understand here. I just got to get it to here, right? But we don't get it to here. That's where it starts. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to go through this. And, and uh, uh, that little button isn't there anymore. Oh. Oh, there it is. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I don't know if we need to go back. Can you go back to the main Did page? somebody, let's see, display settings. Let's go up here to this. I only got one button I know how to do. <laughs> Swamp presenter view and no. Duplicate slideshow, I think. Let's try that. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> So, in this saving faith, the, what, the, what the book summarizes really about is not, not what we might think about how, how are we saved. There's no contradiction between we're saved by grace through faith. That doesn't change. But 
what goes on in our heads and in our hearts when we are saved? That's really the question. And I don't know how much, I, I know I hadn't thought a lot about that, is what, what's the transformation? What really takes place in my head and in my heart? And is faith really save, my faith really saving faith? Because we know there's faith that isn't saving faith. James talks about it. The apostles talk about it. You know, don't, don't, don't let your faith be in vain, right? James talks about dead faith. I'm not talking about, as we go through here, I'm not talking about the fruits of after we're saved. I'm talking about what, what happens in our, in our saving faith. So what, you know, what does God bring about in his children when he gives them saving faith? What is my mind and my heart doing when I receive Christ? And that's something that the, there was a real focus on, which was really helpful to me, is we receive Christ. What does that mean, receiving Christ? That, that's, that's an important uh, factor. And when we think about our, our, our heart, believing in our heart, that's the mind, the soul, the spirit, one's entire emotional and natural understanding. That's what that's what, that's what it is. That's what believing in our heart is. So I'm going to go to the second slide. And, you know, this is, this is really instrumental in, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6. And as we read this, uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. So that tells us what we were before we were saved, right? We were blinded. This is crazy how this is the entire uh, part of conversion. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness just like in Genesis 1-3, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When, when we're saved, when we're converted, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what Piper talks about in this book is, he, is, is there an affectionate element to faith, to saving faith. Is there an affectional element? It's not an add-on. It's, it's, is there that affection? And for us, as we, as our hearts give light, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That, that changes, that's what changes us. That's God's miracle. And in verse 7, which isn't up here, uh, it's called a treasure in jars of clay, and that jars of clay is the, the, that's used in a way that the glory still belongs to God, not us. We're not, we're not of, of that value. So, so when Paul speaks of the creation and, uh, of this spiritual seeing in 2 Corinthians 4.6, in 4.4, I, I think I may have already covered most of this, but in 4.4, the unbeliever cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But in 4.6, God acts to take away the blindness. God speaks to the heart as he spoke to the darkness, 
on the first day of creation, let there be light, Genesis 1-3. The effect of this sovereign act on the human heart is the creation of light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It shines from the gospel into our hearts. We see the eyes of the heart, the glory of God in Christ, and a believer is born. That, that's, that's what that event really is. And we're going to talk about what does that do, what does that mean? What, how do we experience that in our head and in our heart? So before the miracle uh, of this in 4.6, we heard the gospel story of Christ and saw it as boring or foolish or legendary or incomprehensible. We saw no compelling beauty in the value of Christ. Then God shone in our hearts, we saw glory, right? This was not a decision. This was a sight. That's what the scripture says. It was a sight. We went from blindness to seeing. When you go from blindness to seeing, there is no moment to decide whether you are seeing. You see. It is not a choice. You cannot decide to see the act of seeing. And you cannot decide not to see as glorious what you see as glorious. This is the miracle God works in verse 6. Once we were seeing the gospel facts without seeing the beauty of Christ. How often, you know, I, I can tell you that I can really relate to this. You know, we can see the facts about the beauty of Christ, but not see Christ. Then God spoke, and we saw through the facts of the gospel the beauty of divine reality. So this seeing in 2 Corinthians is the conversion. It's the, it's, the, it's the coming into being of a believer. And verse, of course, we already said, verse 4 describes the unbeliever. Verse 6 describes what happens and what God does in our heart to see the glory of Christ. Have you ever asked yourself, you know, what does it mean to believe with your heart? I talked about that a little bit because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10.10. 10. Uh, for, for with the heart one believes, he is, justi- is justified, and with the mouth one confesses. So we're saved by our heart believing. So I, just, I want you to think about that. Your heart is believing. And we know that our hearts are, are basically dead in our sins and transgressions. We have hearts of stone. So unless that heart gets changed through the miracle of God saving us, there's no possibility that we can believe with our heart. It, it, it just, it's impossible. So I'm asking about the experience of saving faith. What are the conscious dynamics of it? What is it like in the head, the reason? What is it like in the heart, the affections? And what is it like to experience it? Out of in Ephesians 2.8, um, By grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Whoever believes has eternal life. Does that include me? Do I have saving faith? I, 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 I ask myself that question. That's an important question for us to ask. Do we have faith, or do we have saving faith? I've kind of taken it for granted that if I have faith, I, I just say I have faith. It's not just faith. Is faith really experience an experience? Um, in, in John, uh, when Jesus was being questioned, he said, 
Verily, verily, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And, and then in, in Ezekiel, we have another experience, right? So in that first one, is the experience is being born again. That's how John is explaining it. And in Ezekiel 36, 25 through, through 27, uh, a new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart, I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to work, walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So the sprinkling of the water and the changing of the flesh to a heart of flesh, we, we think about that, uh, and that's, that's what I'm talking about. So what does the Bible reveal to us about the experience of faith? Because we probably haven't talked or heard much about experiencing faith, and I'll go into it uh, and really clarify some of that in a minute, but here are some questions for us to think about. Jesus, if you say that you are the supreme treasure in Matthew 13, 44, and that receiving you is what faith does in John 1, 12, then what is it like when faith receives you as its treasure? When you describe believing as coming to you to drink and never thirst again, John 6, 35, what are you saying about faith and the soul's satisfaction? Paul, what do you mean when you say that we can have faith, even mountain-moving faith, and still come to nothing in our lives? 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Love of Christ is necessary for salvation. What do you mean, Paul, when you say that we can believe the gospel in vain? 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Why do you contrast not believing the truth with having pleasure in unrighteousness? 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, 12. If the gift of faith is the new ability to see the glory of Christ, what we just talked about in 2 Corinthians, and if there are eyes in our heart, from Ephesians 1.18, then why do you say that we walk by faith and not by sight in 2 Corinthians 5.7? How is it that faith has the amazing power to cause people to love each other, Galatians 5.6.1, excuse me, Galatians 5.6 and 1 Timothy 1.5, and that everything that does not come from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. What is it about faith that makes loving people inevitable? Since you say that Abraham grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, Romans 4, 20, would I be justified in saying that God is not glorified by being trusted for a promise? while being regarded as embarrassing and boring? Now, what do we think about God? And John, how does, the, how does faith overcome the world and turn burdensome commandments into happy obedience? From 1 John 5, 3 and 4. Finally, in the, in the Christ-exalting book of Hebrews, what am I to make of your definition of saving faith as the substance of things hoped for? And of course, that's the King James Version uh, calls it a substance. When I use the word experience I, in this book, this is John Piper talking, when I use the word experience, I don't have in mind any particular intensity of emotion 
or any particular height of mental clarity or any mystical occurrence. When he's talking about that, he's talking about the actual element of faith. What does it include? Not what do we need to do to get saved, like works, etc. All I imply by the word experience is that faith happens in us, and when it does, it is a conscience event, and we are involved with it, and I mean morally involved, not the way we are involved with a sneeze or a headache experience, as I am using the word in relation to faith, is not an immoral sensation that sweeps over us like shivers in the cold. It is something that takes place of the experience I am talking about. I want to know what the Bible reveals to us about the experience of faith. What is its nature? Faith is not a theory. It is not an idea. It is experienced in the mind and heart, or we are not saved. That's important. And what does affection mean? In, 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 in used here. What does affection mean? Specifically, I want to know if there is, in, if there is in, in the very nature of saving faith some kind of affectional element. That is, does saving faith include any element of love for Christ or admiration or adoration or treasuring or cherishing or delighting or satisfaction or thankfulness or revering? All these words are affectional words, by the way. They represent experiences in the human soul that he's using, calling here affection. He's arguing in this book that saving faith does indeed have in its very nature affectional elements, dimensions, or aspects. When he uses the term affections or affectional, I don't have in view any physical acts of the body or even natural acts of the mind or heart. I do have in mind experiences of the heart that go beyond mental awareness or cognition or persuasion or conviction or resolve or decision. None of those words are, are affectional. When I, when I describe saving faith in, in this book as affectional, I am not referring to something merely natural. I'm referring to spiritual affections, not natural ones. Natural emotions are not spiritual affections. But spiritual affections are a spiritual form of emotion. That is, the heart is moved. Some kind of feeling happens that goes beyond thoughts or ideas or decisions, but not in merely a natural feeling. When I use the term affection, affectional or affections, I'm thinking of them as the special work of the Holy Spirit. I am thinking in the terms of 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are fully to him, folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned from the Spirit. In other words, the love, delight, and satisfaction I am asking about are not merely natural experiences. They are divine gifts. They are the work of the Spirit, but they are no less affections because of that. Okay? So, um, you might say, I am asking the question in James 14, 2.14, can that faith save him? James meant, can faith that does not produce good work save a person? James 2.26, but I am not asking whether faith 
that does not produce good works can save. Rather, I'm asking whether faith that does not include an affectional element such as treasuring Jesus can save. That's the question. And, you know, Terry shared the greatest commandment of all. And what, is, what did he share? To love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And what we're talking about is in this element of saving faith, does that, do we see the glory in the face of Christ? And do we love him above all else? Have you experienced this? Just as Christ must be both our Lord and Savior, will we also experience him as supreme treasure if we have saving faith? Okay, so blessed are those who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied from Matthew 5, 6. So if you're, you remember, maybe you remember, uh, some of you, that oftentimes we, we're... There, there's teaching of Christ as Savior, right? But not Christ as Lord. Now, we know that that's, that's not true, right? John, John, uh, in John, it talks about that. I believe it's John 3, 36. Uh, and that's pretty, pretty easy for us to look at and see that if we don't obey, you know, if you don't, lo- if you don't obey me, you don't love me, right? That's pretty. This, and in the, in the early 80s, there was a big controversy about that. And John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus that kind of was a pushback on that because he was being accused of establishing a works-based gospel. So that if we became, if we were actually servants to Christ, if we were actually slaves to Christ, then that would be, that would be considered a works-based, right? So in this, what Piper's saying is, He's not talking about adding anything to the element of saving grace. What he's saying is, what's our, what's our perspective when we get saved? What does, that, what does that saving faith include? What, is it, what happens in us when that occurs? So here he, he uh, does a good job of treasuring is not just one thing. I use the term treasuring as my default summary expression of the affectional nature of saving faith. I take the verb treasure to be a fitting experimental counterpart to the noun treasure. I will argue that Christ is the essence of the treasure in the text like Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And 2 Corinthians 4, 7, which we talked about, we have this treasure in jars of clay. When I say that treasuring is my summary of expression, the affectional nature of saving faith, I mean to imply that there are diverse affections in the natural nature of saving faith, not just one. The heart experiences treasuring Christ differently as it embraces different aspects of Christ's greatness and beauty and worth. There is joyful treasuring because we taste the substance of that joy set before us. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Hebrews 12.2. You can look at that. Um, our, obviously, our, our, our chapter on faith. That, uh, so there's treasuring like the satisfying of hunger because Christ is the bread of life. There's treasuring like the, like the pleasure of quenched thirst because Christ is the fountain of living water. 
There's treasuring like the love of the light after darkness because Christ is the radiance of divine glory. There's treasuring like the love of truth because Christ in the gospel is the preciousness of true reality. And this list could be extended as far as there are glories of Christ to be known. Saving faith treasures them all as each is known. They are precious. All are treasured, but the affectional experience is is not the same in each case. So it is in the way Christ is received by saving faith. Well, this, is, this, is a, this might be a little bit hard to swallow. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means believing on Christ, not by a bare decision to affirm that Christ can rescue us from hell and make the future more like a golf course than a forest fire. That is not saving faith. To become a Christian, to be justified and finally saved, is to embrace Christ, to embrace him. Not take, not take between the fingers as one gets a boarding pass, shows it twice, after the flight throws it away. Faith, that faith does not embrace Christ. Cheap between our fingers. To believe savingly is to embrace Christ with the soul as the supreme good offered and the inestimable treasure, believing is receiving. Christ, not as a guardian of my most treasured possessions, but as the most treasured possession himself, for which I am prepared to lose anything, that is what it means to be a Christian. The parables are true. And it's, it's taught me in this that to pay a lot more attention to the parables and, and, what, and what they say. So as, as we go from here, you know, this, this idea of, of there being a, uh, an element of affection, what, one of the things that Piper does, uh, if you know him, he's, he's just a, obviously a wonderful writer. He is probably one of the deepest thinkers that I've ever read or listened to. And so he begins to qualify everything. And why, why do I think this is true? What do, what do, what do some of the old um, men of God say about this about faith actually having a, an affectional element to it. He goes through that. And then, and then when he gets done with that, he says, so that still doesn't prove my point because even though they agree with me, I still need to go to God's word. I still need to, need to know in God's word what does, how does that prove that point. But before we get to that, I, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going go to um, go through some of the old-timers. Old I thought you might find this interesting um, but let me back up for just a second. The, the idea of what happens in when we have faith is not, is not new. It's been, there, there's been, there's been a, a, an attempt to identify what, what actually happens, and there are three things. There's knowledge, assent, and trust. Those are the three elements that, have, that are, are what happens to us if, that when, when we believe. And these men, what they will say is there's more than that. There's more than just three things that occur. So the first person that we talk about here is a man by the name of um, Herman Witsius. You can see he was one of, the, one of the Puritans from way back when. And he talks about the elements that occur that and there must be a hunger and thirst after Christ. 
It's not just a, a matter of these decisions. He says, saving faith is not any one particular act or habit, nor must it be restricted to any one faculty of the soul, for it is a certain complex thing consisting of various acts which without confusion pervade. And uh, I'm going I'm I'm to back up just a, a tiny little bit here in, in my notes. Um, if you give me just a quick second. Um, I'm going to back up here. So I, I've already mentioned to you that the question is not about fruitful affections, right? Does everybody understand that? It's, it's not about, you know, we think of when we say, oh, somebody a believer, well, do they show fruit? Is there fruit in their life? And that fruit is as a result of saving faith. But there are fruits that can also be shown by non-believers, whether it may be kindness. It, there's a variety of things that we can look at somebody and say, oh, they're really kind. But they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily saved, Right? That's just, that's just a, a common grace. Um, um, so one thing I want to clarify, I think, before, before we go on is, uh, in here, he's, he talks about, is there any dimension of the heart's love for Christ that the Bible treats as integral to saving faith? I want to know if any spiritual affections are integral to saving faith, not just as defects, which calls for another clarification. Is faith saving or is Christ saving? Okay, is faith saving or is Christ saving? When I speak of saving faith, I do not mean to imply that faith somehow has usurped the place of Jesus Christ as the one who saves. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, that's in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ the Lord is our Savior. Unto you is born today, city of David, and we're close to that at Christmas time here. It's in Luke 2.11. Um, faith is never called our Savior. Faith is never called our Savior. Jesus saves, and faith is the Spirit-given human instrument through which he does it. Faith receives, Christ saves. So through our faith, we receive Christ, but it's Christ that saves. Um, we talked about that. Um, so when, when we do have saving faith, I, I, I am going to say to you that we also experience him as our supreme treasure if we have saving faith. So that, that, that is something that we all need to really think about. Do, is Christ really our greatest treasure? Like in Matthew 12, 44, and you know the story about finding a treasure, burying it, selling everything he had for that treasure, right? We know about the rich young ruler that had everything. And Jesus told him to, to leave and, and go give his money away to the poor. He wasn't telling him money was bad, but that stood in the way. And what he wanted is he wanted that person to love him above everything else. But sometimes we, 
I kind of take that stuff for granted, and I think, oh, you know, I have this saving faith. I believe Christ died on the cross, and I, I say that. But a, a, better, a better estimate of your saving faith is, do I treasure Christ above all else? That's, that's really the, the question we need to ask ourselves. So I mentioned to you already that the three words that have been used for a long time to explain what is required to have faith, to be saved, I'll call it, have been faith, belief, and trust, right? So I want you to think about these words, belief and trust. So who would you trust for your brain surgery? A dishonest, foul-mouthed, highly skilled, effective surgeon? Or a kind, honest young surgeon with little experience if you were going to have brain surgery? Right? You want the, you, 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 those things don't matter to you, do they? In fact, I've had that experience in my shoulder surgery, and I thought the doctor was not a, a great guy, but he was a really good surgeon. So we must look at how the words are used in the most illustrate, illuminating biblical context as, as the bricks that are part of the whole build, beautiful building of God's inspired truth. Theologians have always assumed that saving faith includes more than the confidence that Christ is competent, right? We think about it. We think, well, Christ is competent to save us, but that's not, that's not really saving faith, right? Just like the surgeon, we say, well, he's competent. I, I think, it, I think I, right now I'd like to, I, I mentioned a little bit the... the um, the treasure, but I think I think something that might illustrate it as much, or, or maybe even more so, is is in Luke um, fourteen sixteen through twenty four. But he said to him, "A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready.'" But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go to examine them. Please excuse me. And another said, I married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So, you know, in that, you know, what what do we have? We have real estate family, possessions, all those things that I deem and, and likely you deem important above Christ. And, and that's just being honest, you know, it's just being honest. What, if I, these people didn't treasure Christ above all else. And I don't want this to, for you to think about this being a works type thing or I've got to do these things. That's not what it's about. What it's about is, is that if we are truly saved, we will see the glory of Christ shine in us, which will cause our, our hearts to change. And this is what it will be like. And we know that because what, what have we heard in, in Matthew 7, 23? 
My sadness grows, you know, when we think about this, that there may be millions of people who think of themselves as heaven-bound, hell-escaping Christians who are not. People for whom Christ is at the margins of their thoughts and affections, not at the transforming center. People who will hear Jesus say at the judgment, I never knew you, depart from me. All I have pondered, all I have pondered, the roots of this looming calamity, Mrs. Piper, I have not been able to escape the conviction that it is partly rooted in a widespread misunderstanding about what saving faith is. Not just among nominal Christians, but among pastors who don't show the unsuspecting Christians their error. Of course, I am not the only one who has been seeing this impending shock coming for nominal Christians at the judgment of Christ. Many have sounded the alarm. And he goes in to talk a little bit about the MacArthur's book, as I already mentioned to you, The Gospel According to Jesus. And, and as I said, you know, many will say, call Jesus a Savior, but not as Lord, right? And so what Piper is saying is he's, that's really the part he's talking about, not just Lord and Savior, but also our relationship with him in that saving faith will have an affectionate relationship. We're changed. Something happens, and that's what he's asking through this. So uh, I think we're, we're, we're sort of back on track here um, and, and, uh, and talking about this, the, the, these elements, because you may be wondering, well, you know, this, I'm kind of confused about all this. This is complex. It was, it, was, it was complex to me. And also, you know, John Piper, because he's an extremely deep thinker, he tries to, he tells you what he's going to tell you, and then he qualifies a whole bunch of stuff. He qualifies what does he mean when he says this, says this. He even talks about some of the definitions of the words he's using. And I'm just trying my best to give you a little bit of a flavor of, the, of some of these to, to provoke you to, to really think about this and, to, and to, to maybe examine yourself and to, to look farther in this. Anyway, I'll, I'll, quickly, go through, I'll quickly go through some of the, some of the uh, gentlemen in the past. Uh, Herman Witsius, uh, he says that saving faith is not a one particular act or habit. It must not be restricted uh, to any one particular faculty of the soul. Uh, he, uh, I'll just go through, read this here. It's consisting of various facts which without confusion pervade and by sweet and happy conjunction mutually promote and assist one another. So they all work together is what he's saying. It imports a change of the whole man in the spring of the whole spiritual life, in, in fine, the holy energy and activity of the whole soul towards God in Christ. And therefore, its full extent can scarcely be distinctly comprehended under any one single idea. John Owen, who most of you have probably heard of, the, the accepting of Christ by the will as its only husband, Lord, and Savior is called receiving. This is to receive the Lord Jesus in his comeliness and eminency. Let believers exercise their hearts abundantly unto this thing. Let us receive him in all his excellencies as he bestows himself upon us. Be frequent in thoughts of faith, comparing him 
with our beloveds and preferring him before them, counting them all loss, and during in compassion of him. So receiving Jesus is saving because as the Father has life in him, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So the life from Christ comes from the Father. We know that, John 5, 26. Therefore, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Receiving the Son is how we have the Son, and only by having the Son do we have life indeed. Only by receiving and thus having the Son do we all have the Father is for us in the Son. Therefore, saving faith is a receiving of Jesus Christ and all that God is for us in him. Okay, I want to read that again. Saving faith is receiving of Jesus Christ and all that God is for us in him. So one of the things I found myself is really dwelling more on what does it mean to receive Christ, not what does it mean to be saved. What does it mean to receive Christ? Because I hope we can all agree that being saved is receiving Christ. And we, I know we also talk about being filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, yes, yes, but we receive Christ and his glory, and that's how we see God, right? We talked about that, I think. We see God through Christ. And so when, when, when we're saved, it's a, it's, a, it's a miracle, right? It's a, it's a significant event. It is not just me making, you know, thinking I'm just making a decision nonchalantly. When I refer to receiving Christ, I don't limit this receiving to the first act of faith. I argue that saving faith is both the first act of receiving Christ, and he shares the verses there, and the ongoing spirit of welcoming him and depending on him hour by hour, as we see in Galatians and in Ephesians. Saving faith is lifelong, preserving faith, not just the act by which we first become Christians. Not just, but it is also that. We will, we will see that uh, not to pierce, persevere is never to have had faith. So we believe in the perseverance of the saints, right? And that perseverance is because we have received Christ, not because we've done something to be good enough, not because we made a one-time decision to say, I believe in Christ. We are only saved if we have received Christ into our heart. And I'm going to argue that John Piper has is, is, is definitely persuaded me that it's an affectionate experience in our spirits for Christ. Um, so the, the, the affectional nature of saving faith really is determined by the nature of the Christ we receive, right? So what is the nature of Christ we receive? And we see all of his glories. When the Holy Spirit creates saving faith in the new birth, he sets Christ before us and removes our blindness, right? So we, we, we were blind. 
And we talk about that, but I've never really thought through, you know, what does that really mean as, as so much as in this, that if we're blind, now just think about if you were blind, you know, you close your eyes, you, you, that's a little bit of a taste of what blindness is. And if those eyes are opened and you saw Christ, what would, what would happen to you? You know, what, what is that, that affection's like? And again, it's not a natural affection. It's, it's something that, that just like faith being a gift, we don't understand, right? But, but if God tells us that we are to love him above all else, that love is an affectionate word. By the nature of faith that comes into being at that moment is determined both by the gift of new eyes and by the beauty and the worth of what we've seen. Is Christ our treasure? Um, I know we're, I'm, I'm going a little, little bit, maybe a little bit long for you here, and I'm going to try and finish up quickly, but I want to I want to say that for Paul, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul now, the value of knowing Christ has more value than all things, right? He, he tells us in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count every blessing as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord. Knowing Christ. How do we know Christ? In our heads and in our hearts, right? For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counts everything as rubbish. Everything other than that is not important to him. But in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through, what? Faith in Christ. Saving faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on, on faith. Uh, I'm going to quickly go over this because we've, we've already talked about um, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 7. Um, but Paul uses the words treasure. Okay? Paul uses those words in in, uh, in verse 7, and uh, he's describing treasure to describe the glory of Christ in the human heart, right? That, that is our treasure above all else. So faith is, is a living reality, okay? Um, if saving faith is like selling all the joy to receive the kingdom... Matthew 13, 44, we talked about that. If saving faith means loving Jesus more than our dearest relatives, Matthew 10, 37. If saving faith is designed to overcome anxiety, Matthew 8, 26. If saving faith is designed to overcome doubt, if saving faith, faith embraces a promise to inherit the world, if saving faith sees the very glory of God in Christ, if saving faith is the present realization of hoped-for joy, from Hebrews, if saving faith knows Jesus as more valuable than all other privileges, Christ the believer's treasure and satisfaction. That's what that's about. Um, faith is not just 
the receiving of Christ who is a treasure, but the treasuring of Christ. Not just agreeing that there is a joy set before us, but tasting now the substance of that joy. Not just agreeing uh, with that, and not just knowing the truth of the gospel, but loving it, finding more pleasure in Christ than in unrighteousness. Not just affirming that our Father is more desirable than the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, but actually loving him so as to overcome the world's distaste for God's commandments. Not just discovering that Christ is the bread of life and the living water, but eating and drinking it to the soul's satisfaction. Oh, I, I, I want to I leave you with one thing and, and uh, that you may, be, you may feel a little bit, uh, you know, wondering about all this, but should we feel dismay that such vastness of meaning for saving faith puts it beyond what a child can experience or beyond what a person with little awareness of the biblical story can experience? No. And the reason is that every conversion to Christian faith from the simplest child to the Ph.D., The scope of knowledge and the intensity of response are limited and varied. The convert needs enough of the gospel so that the Holy Spirit, through it, can grant an authentic sight of Christ and his saving work and thus awaken saving faith. That faith receives and treasures Christ in whatever measure of truth has been shared. The authenticity of that infant faith will be proven by the happy welcome of every new vista of Christ's truth and beauty. So it's a living faith, just like we have a living God. And, um, you know, I I hope that, uh, you know, and, and, and what I would say from this is, this is mostly about the first half of the book, maybe just a little bit from... From, from the end uh, in terms of that clarification. But, I want, you know, just think about the question really, is Christ my greatest treasure? That, that, that would really be the, the thought for you to, to think about. And if, if something is our greatest treasure, we can't help but have an affection for that. So that's, um, it's just, I, I, I would say, you know, think about that. Um, so I'm going to pray as we close here. And Father, I, I just ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would show your face to us, the light of your glory in our hearts, in our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the gift of receiving your Son so that he would be our greatest treasure that we would love you with all of our hearts, all of our soul, and all of our minds. I thank you for your son, Jesus.